It would be unkind to me if I didn't take just a moment to express my appreciation to you for the invitation to come. This church has a reputation for loving God, loving His Word, and loving souls. On the way over here tonight, I think it was on 31, a car passed me that had on the back, embossed on the back, the virtualbiblestudy.com. He's probably in this audience right now. I appreciate your zeal to spread the word in that way. And Greg and his bulletin, I've used so many articles in that bulletin from what he has published, and it goes around the world, I'm sure. I appreciate all the efforts you do, because you know that truth is important. I would echo Greg's statements tonight concerning your listening to what I have to say. I'm a man. I can make mistakes. If you find upon examining what I say that I've missed it, I would count you a friend for letting me know that. I'll not be angry at you for pointing that out to me. But if you find that what I say is truth, understand we're all the same boat. I can't preach to you without having fingers pointing back at me. I have to do the same thing you have to do. We all stand before the same eternal God. A friend of mine came several years ago, and he preached on the subject of Matthew 22. And I thought it was one of the best jobs I've ever heard because this is a unique psalm that pictures Jesus on the cross from the standpoint of the crucifixion victim rather than someone who's witnessing him as in Isaiah 53. He did an eloquent job showing the suffering of Christ for us to save us from our sins. A few months later, I learned that his sister was very, very sick with cancer. And he let it be known that he was praying for her and wanted all the brethren everywhere to pray that she might be healed. A few months later, his sister died, and this man lost his faith in God because he said, God didn't answer my prayers when I needed him most. And I've thought about that many times. Is God a cosmic bellboy who is subject to my whims so that he has to do anything I say? Is it God's job just to jump at my back and call and do whatever I plead with Him to do? And if enough people say it, then it's bound to be that way, as though we know more than God, and we're the God and He's the servant. They say that World War I is the war that killed God. Now, God, by definition, can't be killed. What they mean by that is World War I killed a lot of people's faith in God. The, the horrendous facts of war were, were too atrocious to think there's a loving God. Well, when you think about it, if you want to get rid of all the evil in the world, the best way to do it is to get rid of all the people in the world. Have you ever gone through ghost towns? Typically, you look at the surveys about ghost towns. What's their rate of uh, armed robberies in a ghost town? How many people are murdered in a ghost town? How, how many school shootings do you hear about in a ghost town? Where there are no people, you have no evil. It's people who do evil. And people can't blame God because men lobbed bombs on one another in World War I. In fact, if you do away with God, you, you rid yourself of any standard by which you can judge what is right or wrong. You go back to the law of the jungle. Dog eat dog. Eat rather than be eaten. The survival of the fittest. Who wants to live in a society like that? And so it, it, you can say there is no God, but once you do, when we talk about the animal eating the other animal, we're on that same par. If all we are is a bunch of molecules in motion, then we don't have any standard by which we can condemn anything anybody does, and the rest of our lives are not only miserable, but, but terribly frightening.
I'd like to suggest to you this business about questioning God is not new. If you'll turn with me to Psalm 6, you'll see that David had some of the same questions that you hear today. In Psalm 6, David talks about crying so much that his bed, he thought, would float away on his tears. Have you ever cried that much? He talks about workers of iniquity that he wants to depart from him. Reminds us of what Jesus said in a later day. But in verse 3, he says, My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, and then he breaks off in mid-speech in Psalm 6-3, and he says, How long? How long are you going to let me go through what I'm suffering? I've prayed and nothing's happened. If you fast forward a thousand years and come to the New Testament, the book of Revelation, chapter 6, from Psalm 6 to Revelation 6, you see the fifth seal has been opened. And here we have pictured for our edification under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the Word of God and for the testimony which they held. That's Psalm 6, that's Revelation 6, verse 9. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord? Reminds you of Psalm 6, doesn't it? That's what David was asking a thousand years earlier. In a typical Hebrew law court, there was no district attorney who would stand and cross-examine the people who needed to be uh, held accountable for something. So each person was his own plaintiff, and he would argue his own case. And he would ask the questions, and he would say, we need to do this, or need to do that. Now, if this person who's been wrong standing there takes his own case under his wing and tries to accomplish something, then he's going to have to have the right questions and the right power behind him and have the judge agree with him. And in this case, how long, O Lord, holy and true? If the judge on this case fails to vindicate these men who are crying out because they've been killed for their faith, if he fails to do this, and by default, the judge is siding with those on earth who killed these Christians. But if he sides with these who are pleading with him, by default, he must punish those who have inflicted this upon them. So he makes this very, they make this very plain. How long, O Lord, holy and true? The human court condemned us, but your court is true. Will you override this, the Supreme Court of the universe? Until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Their purpose is not human vengeance, but it's rather the essence of their faith. They went to their deaths believing it was worthy to die for the cause of Christ. And if God doesn't overrule that, then that faith is a, an illusion and their book they followed is a lie. Well, I'm interested in God's response. In verse 11, it says, A white robe was given to each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while. A little while longer. Rest a little while longer. Nothing's going to happen for a while with you until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. John's writing in the interest of those who are still alive, and they may know that in the very near future they will be dead just like these. And what's going to happen to them? Well, these robes are given to them. Next time we see them in Revelation 20, they're reigning with Christ. But death is not really a big deal for a Christian. All we do is transfer from here to a far better place. But in all of this, you'll not see where God says, well, let me explain to you why it was that you went through this horrible death on earth. He never stoops to the level in his communication with man to say, here's why you went through it. He just says, trust me. 
And in the meantime, you have nothing to complain about where you are. It's far better than what you had on earth. I want to ask three questions this evening concerning the subject of praying to God and how people oftentimes try to judge God. I want to ask the question, first of all, does God answer prayer? That seems to be on a lot of people's minds. Does He? Well, I'm going to invite you to turn to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, at verse 12, I want you to listen to this very, very carefully. This is one of hundreds of verses we could use for this purpose. 1 Peter 3.12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Back in the 1880s, in a New England community, there had been a drought for several months, and the Presbyterian preacher of that little community invited all the folks who lived there to come to the Presbyterian church building to pray that the drought would be removed. They met together on that Sunday afternoon and they prayed and three hours later a great thunderstorm moved through that part of the country. Everybody in that community came except for one man and the one man who didn't come, his barn was struck by lightning and burned down. So he took the preacher to court saying, he's the cause of this, he has to build me a new barn. Well, the preacher had a good lawyer. And the lawyer said, this preacher didn't pray for lightning. He prayed for rain. Now, enough rain had caused a flood to wash away that barn. You'd have a point. But it, it was struck by lightning. My, my man is innocent. And so he got off. Now, today, that wouldn't even make it to a courtroom. That's a true story. But today, that wouldn't make it to a courtroom because everybody knows either God is not there or else if He is, He's asleep on duty. You know what you hear? The twin towers come down. And what's the first reaction that people have? Where was God? He didn't do his job. More about that in due course. Let me ask you a question. We've proven that God answers prayer. How? Because the Presbyterian preacher had people come over and they prayed? Listen carefully to my answer. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Some of this, what do you mean? There's a logical fallacy called something happens before this, therefore it happens on account of this. You have in the old days, uh, the Indians wanted it to rain, so they'd get their drum and they would start beating on it. You know, eventually it rained. But the drum didn't have a thing to do with it. And you have other occasions where I, I grew up on a farm. Every morning the roosters would crow. Next thing you know, the sun comes up. But one didn't cause the other. For many years I've lived in the city. We have no roosters anywhere around. And the sun just keeps on coming up without the roosters. And you know, if, if you invite, I don't care how many people at any given time to pray for a certain thing, say, rain, eventually it's going to rain. And you can always say, well, it's because we came together and prayed. The reason we know God answers prayer is not because of the actions of a Presbyterian preacher. The reason we know God answers prayer is because the Bible says so. But now here's the rub. In 1 John 5, verse 14, we must pray in a way that is in harmony with God's will. 1 John 5, 14 tells us, this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Okay. 
That's the first question answered. Does God answer prayer? Yes. Now, here's the second question. We want to ask the question, does God still work in the world today? Is He doing something in this world today? Now, there is a doctrine called deism. Deism says that God created the universe, then He just stood back and let happen whatever happens and never intervened at any time and in any way. It's like a clockmaker who makes his clock, he sets it up on the mantel, winds it up, steps away and never touches it again. If it's fast or slow, he has nothing to do with it, nor does he care. That's God, according to deists. There are so many passages that blow that so full of holes. Uh, John 11, Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus as, after he's been dead for four days. He prays to his father. Then he shouts with his loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And some wag said if he hadn't put the name Lazarus in front of that, he would have emptied every grave in the world. Well, someday he will. But there he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came out of that tomb... God intervened on earth after creation. That's one of hundreds of examples we could see. But at this point, someone's going to challenge me. He's going to say, wait a minute. What Jesus did was a miracle. And you don't believe people are raising the dead today, do you? No, I don't. But the point stands. The issue is, is it deism or is it not? Deism says there was never anything God ever did to interact with the earth after he created it. That shows he did. Whether it's a miracle or not, it's immaterial. God did do something after he created the universe. And many other passages say the same thing. But look, at, listen to this. Most of the time, when God is answering prayer, it's not in answer to someone being raised from the dead in some miraculous way. Most of the time, all through the pages of Scripture, it has to do more with providence than with miracles. And so is it today. For example, you know about Genesis 37 when Joseph is sold by his brothers into Egypt as a slave. They thought they'd be rid of him and never see him again. How did he get down to Egypt? Was it a magic carpet that took him down? He jumped on this carpet and he just flew him through the air magically by mirror. No, he walked or rode a camel or did so, the same way everybody else went down to Egypt. It's hot, it's tiring, it's sandy. That's the way he got to Egypt. When he got there, there are a series of circumstances, each one of them a different link in the chain. All of them, except for a couple of the times when he interprets dreams, are what we would call providence of God as he's working things out. Now listen carefully. God can use his power, his brute force, if I can put it that way, and say, this fellow who's dead, come out of that grave. And he has to do it whether he wants to or not. Lazarus couldn't have stayed dead if he'd wanted to. God has that kind of force. Jesus can say to the storm, peace be still. It has no choice but to do whatever he says. But in providence, God can accomplish his will, though he never alters the free moral agency of the people who are going to carry out exactly what he wants to be done. Look at the death of Christ. These men didn't have any idea they were carrying out God's will and crucifying his son, and yet every one of them did it contrary to the will of God, and yet it's what God had planned all along. When you look at Joseph, almost entirely of providence. That takes power. That takes wisdom, the like of which I can't even fathom. Miracles are wonderful when you read them in the Scripture. Providence requires even more skill and talent and foreknowledge. 
than just brute force. Don't ever underestimate God's ability in the providence of mankind. When you look at Ruth, little book of Ruth, she comes back with her mother-in-law and she goes, it says by happenstance, just by chance, to the field of Boaz. One thing leads to another. She and Boaz marry. Next thing you know, Obed comes along and then Jesse and then David and the seed of Christ is preserved and he comes from that seed. She's mentioned in the pages of Matthew 1 in that genealogy. How did they come about? Did God pick her up out of Moab and just set her over in the land of Israel in the exact spot where Boaz was? No, she went and just picked that out. I, I can't understand providence. It, it's far above me. In Matthew 6, Jesus told us, pray in verse 11, give us this day our daily food, our daily bread. There was a time in ancient Israel that bread would come down from heaven. Remember the discussion in John 6? The Jews thought they had their retirement plan all made out. Lord, you know what Moses did? Now you do this. Give us manna every day. No, you can go out and work. They wanted a miracle. Jesus said, no, God has provided for you in other ways. What do, we, what do we mean when we say, God, give me my daily food? We go out and we do the work. We receive the money. Somebody else raises the crop. Look at the soil that it's in. Look at the sunshine. Look at the rain. Who gives all these things? God does. And in his providence, he doesn't send that bread down already sliced and buttered, and all we have to do is open our mouth and start chewing. But it's still by the providence of God, he provides these things for us. We understand that very well. My favorite is Romans 15. The Apostle Paul is wanting to travel to Rome. He's made no bones about that in chapter 1. Now, he goes back to that fact in chapter 15. And he tells these brethren that he wants them to pray for him. That's Romans 15, verse 30. He ends that verse by saying that you strive together. Don't, don't just say your prayers, but you strive in prayer with me to God for me. What? Verse 31, this is Romans 15, 31, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe. There are dangerous men around who want to kill Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle. Number two, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. He's bringing a contribution for the poor saints in Jerusalem. But look at verse 32, the third purpose, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. You know, if you've read the last chapter of Acts, he finally makes it to Rome. How did he get to Rome? There was a time when Jesus walked on the water. Now, if Paul had gotten to Rome by walking on the water, that would have been a miracle. Even Peter walked for a little ways before he started looking at the wind instead of looking at the Lord. But he didn't get there by walking on the water. He got there on a series of ships, three ships, if I remember correctly. And even though there was a shipwreck, God spared all of them. They go to an island, get the last ship going up to Rome, and there he is. Did God answer his prayer? Yes. Did he have to work a miracle? No, he used natural means. I say natural means. It's God's use of those natural means, but still it's God in control, though it's not a miraculous event that brings him to Rome. Now, with that in mind, I'd like to ask another question. Does God answer prayer? Yes. Does God work in the world today? Yes. He didn't have to work miracles to work in the world today. He does work in the world today. Every passage that says we're to pray, that, that's saying God works in the world. Third question. If these first two are true, that he answers prayers and he's working today, why do bad things happen to good people? Why the tragedies that so many people suffer? 
Now, if you want a detailed answer to this, I can't give it to you. I know in Romans 11, Paul puts us in our place, showing us by making four statements about God and asking three questions concerning God, we better be careful what we say and what we do. And I want you to notice this. The least we can say is, if a person who becomes a Christian becomes immune to tragedy, that takes the faith out of our response. We'd be fools for not jumping on the bandwagon. Come to me, Jesus says, you'll never be sick, you'll be rich. Everything you ever wanted, every request you make will be granted. How foolish not to accept that, but that's not what he says at all. Do Christians get sick? Yes. Do Christians die? Yes. Paul's no longer with us, is he? The gospel's not an insurance policy. It's a book telling us to have faith in him that though the world falls down around us and even affects us, maybe in a physical way, our hope is not here. Our hope is somewhere else. So listen to what he's doing here in Romans 11. In, in verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord? That's his question. You want to say, I have God all figured out. I can put him in a little box. No, all we know is what he's told us, but there's much more to God than what he's told us. When we pray for somebody, we don't know if God is going to answer that prayer for him to be cured or not. That's God's business. All we can do is ask and reverence and leave that up to God. We don't know the mind of God concerning that matter. Number two, who has become his counselor? Isn't that a joke? We hardly know what's going to happen in the next 15 minutes. We think we can counsel the God of eternity? That would be like someone of Elizabeth Taylor's stature giving marital advice. Who are we to counsel God? Then the third one, or who has first given to him and it should be repaid to him? Which of us has put God under his debt? We sometimes get the shoe on the wrong foot, don't we? If God doesn't answer my prayer, well, I'll show him... Do you forget what God has done for you? We are the debtors here, not God. And it's so easy to forget that, like my friend did. Now let's look at the four comments in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. These things are a mystery. They're, God is so deep. We have a little thimble. We feel full of the ocean. But we don't have the whole ocean in the thimble. But there are a number of illustrations that show us that we better stay in our place. Turn with me to Jeremiah 26 for a moment, if you don't mind. I guess if you could pick favorite chapters, I guess one of them would be Jeremiah 26. And Jeremiah, one of my uh, hero prophets who went through uh, unbelievable difficulties. In Jeremiah 26, he's in trouble again, and the princes and the people of all folks are backing him, and it's the priests and the prophets who are trying to condemn him uh, because of what he's saying is going to happen to them. Well, at this point, in verse 17, certain of the elders of the land rose up, and they spoke to the assembly of the people. Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and he spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain 
of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Well, what's the lesson here? Micah said some pretty hard things. Talking about the coming judgment of God. You must be willing to hear God when he says things you don't like. Because he's right. The judgment did come. God means what he says. He's God. I'm down here. He's the creator. I'm a creature. And so he goes on. Hezekiah, in verse 19, did he, did he put uh, Micah to death? Did he not fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor? And the Lord relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced against them? For we're all doing great evil against ourselves. The implication being the Lord may relent again if we would just turn to him like they did. And then he gives this illustration. This is one of my favorites in the book. There was also a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Urijah, the son of Shemaiah of Kerjath-Jerim, who prophesied against this city, Jerusalem, and against this land according to all the words of Jeremiah. And when Jehoiakim, now let's pause here, Jehoiakim is the one in Jeremiah 36 who hears the word, and he takes his penknife and he meticulously cuts it in two, and he throws it on the fire until he's consumed the whole thing. That's his disrespect for the God of heaven. He would fit right in with many modern Americans. When Jehoiakim the king with his mighty men and all the princes heard his words, he heard Uriah preaching these really hard words, really trying to save them. The king sought to put him to death. Uriah fled to Egypt. In verse 22, Jehoiakim the king sent men to Egypt. He was extradited. They brought him back and they put him to death. But here in verse 24, the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah so that they should not give him to the hand of the people to put him to death. I have a question for you. You've just read this. This is all I know about Uriah. Just this is all you know about him. My question is this. Why is it that Uriah is put to death and Jeremiah is spared? You want to answer that for me? Anybody know? I don't have a clue. I don't think it's any of my business. I think if I needed to know, God would have told me. But I do think, concerning us, that sometimes we approach things in the wrong way. I read of a construction worker who was complaining one day about the number of shoes his children went through. He said, they're, they're driving me to bankruptcy. They, they, they're harder on shoes than anybody I've ever seen. I can't keep them in good shoes. And finally, his co-worker had all he could take, and he said, I would give anything if my child, my son, could wear out a pair of shoes. He was in Iraq a few years ago, and he's paralyzed, and he never has worn a pair of shoes in his life. That complaining construction worker went home that night and he gathered up all the shoes that his children had been wearing, many of them half worn out, and he piled them up before him and he got down on his knees and he gave thanks to God for the worn out shoes in his house. Now what's changed in his life? The circumstances haven't changed. The shoes are still there. They're still being worn out. What's changed is his attitude toward his circumstances. When you look at Uriah, why would anybody feel sorry for Uriah? If you have a fellow who's working on a job and it is really strenuous labor and finally one day he gets to retire and the other workers out there slaving and sweating and straining hear that he's home with his feet propped up drinking lemonade under an air conditioner. Do they feel sorry for him because he's no longer with them? Of course not. Here's Uriah. He's not going through the persecution of Jehoiakim anymore. His troubles are over. 
He's in a blessed state, a paradise state. Why well, feel sorry for him? If you want to feel sorry for somebody, feel sorry for Jeremiah. He's still with these crooks. Isn't that the wrong attitude most people have? We're sorry for the wrong person. This person died and went to be with the Lord. Oh, how horrible. What do you mean, how horrible? That's what it's all about, isn't it? In Acts 12, you have something very similar. You have in Acts 12, Herod, who knows he can please the Jews by killing as many apostles as possible. So he grabs a hold of James, the brother of John, and kills him. And next he seizes Peter. That's a good prize. And he's ready to kill Peter. But you know what happens in Acts 12? Well, not when Peter's lying there and he's chained between these soldiers. This angel comes in. Hits him on the side and wakes him up. The chains drop off. He gets his clothes on. He follows the angel and finally comes to and realizes God has rescued him. Now, if you were Zebedee and Salome, the parents of James, would you have a question for the Lord at this point? Would you say, Lord, we have seen your power that you used to rescue Peter. Why didn't you use that same power to rescue James, our son? John is his brother. John could have said, Lord, I've always loved Peter. I'm glad he's out. I'm glad he's free. But Lord, why didn't you rescue my brother? I loved him too. Lord, I'm never going to believe in you again because you didn't answer my prayer. Do you think they even entertain those questions? We don't read that they even ask those questions. Why? Again, don't feel sorry for James. Don't feel sorry for anyone who's died in faithful service to God. Feel sorry for the ones who are still having to go through that torment. The prize is there. The earthly race is over. The deed is done. The victory is won for these others, but not for these who are still around. In Acts 16, four men go into the city of Philippi. There's Paul and Silas. They have two helpers. One is Timothy, and the other is Luke. And you know that from one of the first-person four pronouns here, the we and the us. Luke is with him, at least as far as Philippi, and they pick him up on the end of this journey later on. These four men go. One day, while Paul and Silas are walking along, this girl with a python spirit comes up and she's talking about them. And the Lord never wanted demonic testimony and connection with his word. So Paul finally had enough of this. He turned around and cast out that demon spirit. And the men who had been hit in the pocketbook because this young lady brought them a lot of money, when they saw the demon go out, they saw their pockets go out. That's Luke's figure of speech there. Here's his wordplay. Their prophet went out. They grab a hold of Paul and Silas. They bring them to the magistrates. They rip the clothes off their backs. They take their rods. And unlike the Jews who counted to 39, lest they go over, they don't have any limit as to how long they can beat. And they could beat these men to the pulp. And you can imagine the, the pain, the bleeding, the, uh, all that goes with that. Then they take them as if that's not enough, and they put them in prison in the stocks so they can't even be comfortable to soothe their wounds. As the night goes on, Paul is saying, Lord, why is it that you let Silas and me be beaten to a pulp and you don't let Timothy and Luke get a single scratch? Is that what Paul said? He didn't even bring that up. You know what he's doing? He's not complaining at all. He's not losing his faith at all. What he's doing is saying, 
Let's praise God in song and prayer. They heard the strangest noise coming out of that prison that night they had ever heard prisoners sing. When the earthquake came and their chains dropped off, the jailer himself comes in and he sees the doors open and the chains off and he thinks, I, I better just do away with myself to save Rome the trouble. And you know how that ended. Paul is not angry with God. Because he's willing to go through that torture, he has another family who's become Christian in the city of Philippi. All of us would like for a jailer and his family to become Christians, wouldn't we? Are we willing to go through what Paul went through to see it accomplished? That's a question for us. If we're not willing to, then let's not criticize those who did, and let's not blame God if, if we get a beating for doing what's good. He warned us. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you look at the book of Philippians, chapter 2, it puts us in our place as well. Paul is under house arrest in Rome. This is one of the four prison epistles. And Paul is writing back from Rome, talking about Epaphroditus, their messenger who's been there to serve Paul. Philippians 2, 25, and the rest of the chapter. Well, while he was there, he got very sick. Epaphroditus is sick, and Paul's afraid he's going to die. Paul is grateful that the Lord healed him. You know what Paul could have done? He could have said, Lord, why is it that Epaphroditus comes here and he gets sick and you heal him? But when I pray three times, Lord, take this thorn out of my flesh. I have a thorn in the flesh. Take it away, Lord. Lord, take this thorn out of my flesh. And three times the answer of God came back, no, no, no. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul says, then I'll gladly rejoice in my infirmities if people look at how weak I am. They know the power is not in me, and it'll turn them to God. He could have asked those questions, but Paul didn't ask those questions. He's grateful that Epaphroditus is alive and well and back in Philippi, going to be. And he's grateful that he's had the privilege of being arrested because he's had access to people he couldn't have gotten otherwise. The Praetorian Guard have become Christians. There are saints in Caesar's household, chapter 4, verse 22. Several years ago, I was in a meeting in Georgia. We got news that one of my very best friends on this earth had died of his multiple myeloma after a long struggle. He, he had been converting people more than anyone I have ever known. We went to that funeral, came back to Murfreesboro. About two or three weeks went by, and we went to another funeral in Murfreesboro. My friend who died was 50 years old. A man stood up who was in his middle 80s. I'd had a discussion with him years ago. He was um, probably guilty of spreading more error in Rutherford County than any one other one man I know. And here he was still going strong in his middle 80s, doing the same thing at this funeral. And I'm sitting there, and the thought flew through my mind. I couldn't let it lodge there. The thought flew through my mind. Now, here's my friend who's saving souls, who's dead at the age of 50. And this man who's teaching all these people, all this error is still going strong in his 80s. You want to explain that? No, just drop the subject. That's none of my business. I trust God. He knows what he's doing. But let me tell you this. Though we are put in our place by all these passages, there, there are at least three principles that can help us 
in case our faith is ever growing weak in this issue. Back in the book of Genesis, chapter 18, verse 25, God is talking with Abraham. He condescends to talk to his people and lets them reason with him. And Abraham is saying, Lord, if there are 50 righteous over there in Sodom, are you going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? God says, no. And he goes on to talk to him. And Abraham, along this way, in verse 25, concludes this verse 25 asking, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's the first principle we need to keep under our belt. I may not understand God. That's what we call an understatement. All I know is what He's told me. But I know, and you can bank on it, whatever God does is right. I may not understand it. He does. In the book of Job, following this up, in Job 16, he, he, he's in one of his weaker moments when he says some things he later regrets, and he says God has set him up for target practice. Job 16, 13. He's making me a target. He sends one arrow after another. That's what it seems. He no sooner loses his cattle that he loses his sons you know, and daughters. He no sooner loses those, he's afflicted with all this pain. He no sooner has this happen than his wife tells him, curse God and die. Then on top of this, his so-called friends come and they're not friends at all. And one thing after another, he just set me up one target after another. One arrow after another in the target, just tearing me to pieces. He recovers by chapter 19, and he makes this comment in verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. One thing I know, he says, God's going to make it all right in the sweet by and by. I don't understand everything here, but everything God does is right. A friend told me several years ago that when his daughter was going through a really really dreadful time health-wise. He didn't know if she was going to live. And he said during the midst of that struggle, when he, he was um, on pins and needles, sleepless, wondering what's going to happen, he said a friend came to him during his deepest, darkest hour. And he said, you know, I had a situation several years ago that is very much like what you're going through here. And he said, when my loved one was suffering... I thought this was the worst thing I've ever gone through. But he said, I finally came to the realization that when I stand before God on that last great day, I will truly, thankfully, be able to say to him, God, everything you ever did was right. That's the faith of an Abraham. Then if you go with me to Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8... Paul is discussing the very difficult times we go through in the here and now. If we're children, verse 17, we're heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now that word worthy is a... It's a commercial word. It's where we get our word axiom, when something is equal to something. You remember the old balance scales where they'd have the, the frame, then they'd have the little plates on each side. And over here you'd have your five-pound weight. That's the standard. Now, if you're giving five pounds of sugar or five pounds of meat, these have to match. If, you, if your scale over here is like this, you're, you're cheating your customer. They have to balance. 
And he's saying, I want to tell you something. He said, the sufferings, plural, that we're going through now, sufferings, start piling up the sufferings. Any hospital will let you count sufferings galore. Add one on top of the other. The mental sufferings, the physical sufferings, all that you want to count. Pile them up one mile high. All of those. And he said, add them up over a lifetime. All those sufferings, plural, on that side of the balance scale, are not worthy, they don't balance, with the weight of glory, singular, that awaits us when we leave this world as God's people. We talk about in the sweet by and by. Isn't that a great song? In the meantime, we live in the nasty here and now. Well, what keeps us going in this time of suffering and sorrow, troubles, trials, and tribulation, is the realization of what awaits us beyond. And aren't we grateful that is the case? This spells trust. So if you have Genesis 18, the word you want to remember, all that God does is right. If you look at Romans 8, verse 18, the key word is trust. You're going through some difficult times now. Paul says, I know it. I'm going through them too. But they're nothing compared to what you're going to receive. Hold on. Never give up. The third word is found in the latter part of Romans 8, and it's the word love. Don't ever let anything in this world convince you that God does not love you. Paul goes over this every way you can go over it. Then he backs up and goes over it again. What shall we say to these things, verse 31? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? He talks about Christ in verse 34 who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. He died, He lives, and He pleads to the Father for you and me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're killed all the day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. During World War I, the French soldiers were so tired of their incompetent generals sending them into the face of machine gun fire that they got to the point that when thousands of them were being sent on another suicide mission, they were starting to go, bah, like so many sheep going to the slaughter. Well, that wasn't a proper use of this passage. I guess we can imagine how that must have felt. But here are saints of God who are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. So then in verse 37, yet... He's named the worst things that can happen to us. The death of a sister, your death, you name it. Yet in all these things we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. There's a song, another one we sang, that I think we've relegated to the little people when perhaps it should be used by all of us. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Hold to that. Cling to it. Don't let anything move you away from that. Somebody says, oh yeah, well where was God when my sister died? Where was God when I watched this good man suffer so much? 
Where was God? When? And they bring up all these scenarios. I'll tell you where He was. God was in the exact same place He was when He watched His own Son die on the cross to save you from your sins. That's where He was. And He did it without complaining. We think we know more than God. We have it pictured something like this. If some terrorists want to get in planes and crash into buildings, or if ISIS wants to behead people, again, if there's no God, what's wrong with any of that? But, they say, where was God? Well, if I were God, here's what I would do. Oh, you're saying God should intervene? He should stop sinners? Yes. What are you, a sinner? Yes. You want him to stop you? No. Last thing he wants is for Greg to show up on his doorstep with the Bible telling him what to do. Talk to every other sinner, but don't, leave, don't bother me. Don't put me in that category. If you're a sinner, what you're saying is, I want God to deal with sinners as he should. I want justice. If you want justice, you better be careful. Because once you get it, there's no coming back from that. That's an eternity in hell. You can pay for your sins yourself. It's going to cost you an eternity in hell. You can let the blood of Christ pay for your sins. And you'll end up in an eternal heaven where you do not deserve to be, and I certainly do not. But I'm looking forward to it. I hope that all of you and I and all of us will take him seriously so that that's where we can go. You have listened so patiently. Thank you very much. Could it be that someone in this audience recognizes that you are not ready to meet God? Let God be God, let us be us, and let us give Him the respect, the obedience, the love that He deserves. If you love me, Jesus said, you'll keep my commandments. If you need to come to Him in His appointed way this evening, Peter announced this in Acts 2. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of that man you slaughtered, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If that appeals to you, There are men standing, waiting here this evening who can assist you in your obedience. If you've done this and have turned away, and Owen Medutis and Aaron Christian, when is a better time than now to come back to him? While we stand and sing, we invite.